like the, the nemesis um, of Nehemiah. He was constantly working against them, constantly trying to, to get everything to, to not work in the rebuilding of the wall. Um, he is uh, a, an Ammonite, one of the ones that they just committed that they're saying they weren't going to let them go into the temple. Do you remember that? Um, and so the priest, who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the ties of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. After some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then, I then discovered the evil that Elishah had done for Tobiah for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chamber. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God, and the grain offering, and the frankincense. So not only had they let this guy come into the temple, like, he lived there. They made a room for him, and they said, hey, here you go. Um, and so, he probably wasn't very happy. found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Adiah the the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, Son of Zacher, son of Mattaniah, for they were considerable, considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God before his face. This is kind of Nehemiah's prayer on what he's wanting to be remembered for. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they, were, when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates, that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. And sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time only, do not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites and they, that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor. Spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. 
finally, verse 23, in those days, also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they did not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled off their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehovah, the son of Elisha, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat of Moab. Therefore, I chased him from me. We see this, we see this whole passage, and basically, Nehemiah, if you go back to the covenant they made in chapter 9, he's going through and he's pointing out point by point everything they said they were going to do, they were not doing. They had fallen away, they, had, they were not keeping their promises. They made these great promises to God at the time when they were having this high emotional mountaintop experience, right? They're so excited. God has restored us as a people. He's built this wall for us. We're so excited. We're so excited. Look what God has done for us. We are our people again. We're going to, yay. Yes, God, we're going to commit to you. Yes, we're going to commit to you. Yes, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. And then a few years later, we see that they are not doing that. If you do the math, uh, Nehemiah was the governor in Jerusalem uh, for 12 years. something much deeper, something much sturdier, 
much more steadfast. And that's what we all need in our lives. Sure, the emotions are great. I mean, following the Lord is an emotional thing. He works in our lives. He does amazing things. We need that in our life. But if we're going to be faithful to Him, if we're going to keep promises that we made to Him, it has to be based on something more than just emotion. And that's where this kind of faithfulness, this steadfastness comes in. Now, uh, being New Testament Christians, not like the people in Nehemiah's day, we know that an important component of this is that our lives, our relationship with the Lord, has to be built on Jesus. The New Testament calls him the chief cornerstone. And it's on that cornerstone, it's on that foundation of Jesus that everything else has to be built. And it's like the, the parable of, uh, of the builder, and, you know, there's the different builders, and one builds the, the house on sand, and one builds the house on the rock. The storm comes, the, the, the emotional house is just built on the sand, and the storm comes and it falls over. But if you have a steadfast house that's built on the rock of Jesus, it's going to weather the storms. Going to be able to celebrate the emotional times, but it also is going to be able to be steadfast in the times where things are not going so great. Where in the times where maybe you don't know where the Lord is and because you don't know what He's doing, you don't know what His purposes are and what's going on in your life right now. But because you know Him, because you have a foundation in Jesus Christ, you're going to stand firm. So I ask you over this next year, what do you want to be marked as? Do you want to be marked as? Someone who follows along when times are emotional, when the times seem low. Well, as we see here, Nehemiah comes in, and these people have all done everything they said they weren't going to do. Um, and uh, Nehemiah's pretty worked up. I mean, he's throwing people out of their house, he's pulling hair, he's hitting people. Um, he's obviously not Canadian. Uh, and so, and he's he's just he's just going to town. I mean, he's he's angry. Um, and even at the end of each of his little things, where he talks about, here's how angry I got, and here's what I did to these people. His prayer is, God, remember me from this. So he's pretty proud of it too. Like he's not like, man, I punched the dude in the face. Sorry about that, God, but I think he kind of deserved it. No, he's like, he deserved it. I gave it to him like he needed it. Um, and, uh, and so that's where Nehemiah is coming from on this. And the thing about narrative portions of Scripture like this is just because the Bible describes this is what happened, it doesn't necessarily mean that the Bible is prescribing that this is how we should act. Okay? And so we do have, as, as the reader, we do have the right spirit to kind of interpret this and say, is Nehemiah in the right here? Is he is he in the right in what he, he does here? Or was this just guy, that, guy that's a loose cannon, um, that that's not really how God wants us to act? And honestly, uh, biblical interpreters are on both sides of the aisle of this passage. Um, and so you can make up a decision for yourself. Uh, you know, was, was Nehemiah just um, really worried about nationalism and like protecting his nation and 
probably so worried about the kids knowing the right language and stuff. Like, is he just a close-minded guy? Well, I would propose to you that the whole language thing is about a lot more than just nationality. Um, I would propose to you that the language thing was also about the fact that the Word of God was a communicator. And if you have a whole generation growing up that can't speak or understand Hebrew, then they can't speak or understand the Word of God. And so that's a lot bigger deal than, oh, our kids need to talk the way we talk. This is why uh, in the Protestant Reformation, the Reformers made such a big deal out of uh, the Word of God being translated into the languages of the people. It's so that we can understand it in our language, um, so that we don't have to understand Greek or Hebrew or Latin in order to understand God's Word. But we have it in our language now translated where we can understand it, where we can, can comprehend it, where God can use His Holy Spirit to Him out. 
used to make us think, where else do we see this kind of thing in Scripture? Where somebody goes in to the temple and cleanses the temple. We see Jesus doing this. We see Jesus doing this because in his day, um, it wasn't just that people were selling stuff on the Sabbath, which they were so strict on the Sabbath, they probably were or not. Um, but instead, they were selling stuff in the temple. And so they turned the temple into this whole marketplace, which is supposed to be the place for worshiping God. And, and they turned it into something it wasn't supposed to be. And so Jesus himself turns the tables over, makes a whip, drives everyone out. I don't know if he hit anybody with a whip, but he made a whip. So I don't know what he's doing with it. He might actually crack it. But um, anyway, Jesus cleanses the temple. He runs everybody out. So Nehemiah's actions here are kind of a precursor to Jesus' actions. And so that's probably a pretty good example to follow. Now, a challenge for us is understanding this relationship to the temple in light of where we are today. Um, I remember as uh, a middle schooler, the church I was in, Business meeting. All right, well, the big point of contention in this church business meeting uh, was over the fact uh, that the youth minister uh, was wanting to install a coat machine in the basement of the church where the youth hung out. Okay. This was so contentious uh, because this was going to be the equivalent of selling things in the temple. And one old man even stood up and said, If you install that coat machine, I will be like Jesus, and I will come turn it over. To which I looked at him, and I was like, I don't know if you can turn over a coat machine. Um, I just said that in my head. I was a middle schooler. I was going to keep quiet. Um, but this was a very lasting memory for me on how upset these people were over whether or not the youth were going to have a coat machine. And the clear thing is, is, is those that were very against it, they were making a direct connection between our church, like, churches and the temple. And my question is, do we need to make that kind of connection? Do we need to make that kind of connection to like anything that related to the temple or related to a church building? And I would say no, because we don't see that kind of connection anywhere in the New Testament. Also, which you could say it's probably because the New Testament didn't have church buildings. The church was the group of Jesus is our temple. 
In fact, we see in, in the book of Revelation and in the time to come when we are in heaven with the Lord, it says, and there is no temple there because there's God the Father and there's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the temple. So we don't, we don't need to have a temple. Right? And that's why for a long period of time now, there's been no temple dedicated to the one true God on the face of the earth. Jesus, you know, in the New Testament also tells us that we as Christians are his body. We are a representative of Christ. And so we, we his people, make up his temple. In Corinthians, it also tells us, um, talking to, specifically talking about the, the issue of sexual purity, it says your body is the temple of God. Because when you're a believer, you receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into you. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. Your body is literally the dwelling place of God for what's purpose and place where God dwells. And so as Christians today, we're not as worried about a physical building. Um, that's why here at Potter's House, we're, we're you know, if, if we think a color machine would help us do ministry, we probably would put a color machine in. Just for that say that. Anybody that wants to turn it over, we can have a contest or whatever. But, if we think it's going to help us advance the kingdom, then we probably wouldn't do it. But there is something that we need to pay attention to and learn from in this, this topic. The real issue here was that the people were letting this, this other stuff create the temple and, and take the place of what the purpose of the temple was and take the place of their worship and distract from their worship take away from what they were supposed to be doing. And the way that applies to us is if we're ever doing things that are distracting from our worship, distracting from our purpose here as a church, taking away from bringing glory to God, which is what we want to do in this place, we want to be His people that come together in this spot to, to worship Him and praise Him and glorify Him. If there's ever anything that's creeping in, whether it's selling stuff or whatever, it's taking away from that, distracting from that, anything that would seem like to a new person coming in that, oh, that's what they're all about, not about Jesus, we've got a problem. And that's something we will deal with. That's something we would cut out, we would stop, we would get rid of. And so we need to be careful um, that we, we need to be faithful in making sure that other things do not creep in and appropriate in our worship of God. Spotter's house exists to help people That's what we're about. That's what we're trying to do. And the things that we do to fit into that purpose. And anything that's, that starts to creep in, which this is, is very common in churches and ministries often in the Bible, the, the creep happens when things slip in and they start to distract and take away from what we're supposed to be about and what we're supposed to be focused on. And that's something that we can identify with these people and that we can cut away. And so, He's kind of said along the way, remember me for this one. But in verse 29, he says, Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of priesthood of the Levites. Well, I don't know if he's, he's saying, Hey, remember me for doing it. Hey, but I remember how, 
with the heart. He says, Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priest and the Levites in each man's work. And I provided for the wood for the offering of my tongue as given the first fruits. And it is remembered for me all my divine authority. Who wants to be able to pray that way? Remember me. Jesus was the most important is that, that we get his righteousness and his righteousness covers us. It's not about us achieving goodness on our own or pleasing God on our own, but that because of faith in him, he takes our sin away, he takes away our, all our guilt, and he gives us in, in its place his righteousness, the perfect life that he lived. So we stand before God with clothes of his righteousness covers us, and he sees Jesus as he is good. But when you're clothed in that righteousness,
to go in and set a snare in it, which direction it's going to be branching is the actual real life. There are different levels of faithfulness there that you need to cultivate in your relationship with the Lord. Um, are you getting any grain? If so, keep on. based on Jesus, what we think he does. And so, Lord, for anyone here who's not come to faith in Jesus, that doesn't know him as their Lord and Savior, that hasn't been clothed in that righteousness, Lord, I just pray that you would get their attention today, in whatever way that you need to. And they'll see the need they have for a Savior, they'll place their faith in you, and they'll call out to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. us who do know you, Lord, I know that it's always a journey. There's always ups and downs that we've all feared. So reassure us that it's not a journey. Lord, I can you enlighten for us to kind of focus on. You enlighten for us to kind of to work on and follow you in faithfulness, obedience. And so, Lord, whatever that is for each of us, Lord, I just pray 